Okay. Okay. Right. Are we start? So t- tell me, we're starting. Right. Hello. Welcome. Oh, to you ep- started too early. <laughs> oh, damn it, Darren! You've ruined right. the whole thing. Episode eighty-four of the world-famous and award-winning Tedbot Zoology Podcast. I'm the Black Knight Satellite. And I podcast with Elon Muskrat. <laughs> oh no, God! I love how you choose the worst people on the planet. <laughs> he says, as someone still very active on Twitter. Um, yes, welcome to the new streamlined regular edition of the, the podcast. Honest, uh, Gaff, honest. Right. Yeah. So let's just get launched into it because time is of the essence. Um. Uh, so it's not true that we're actually shutting down the podcast. I keep on saying that on the blog, Tedgebods Wolsey. It's all a lie. Um, loads of stuff that we could talk about, but we're not going to. Um, so... Good news, people. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to talk about what happened in Florida this month. Uh, sorry, last month, January 2023. That was nuts. And uh, yeah, the loads of stuff happened last all year. All the good content year. you're never going to get to hear, people. <laughs> Um, sorry, did we say that we're going to do mention the news items or just go straight to the discussion thing? Or talk about the books? I can't remember. We're talking about the books. <laughs> Unless the news items are really good. <laughs> but books. I don't want to just be like, this happened, then that happened, then that happened. Let's move on. <laughs> One day, I, maybe you also, will learn how to podcast properly. Get a good mm. audience. Right, it so... It seem likely, does it? Are we going to talk about this book? Metazoic Art, yes, indeed. Metazoic Art, published in 2022 by Bloomsbury Wildlife, edited by Steve White and Darren Nash, forward by Tara Whitlack, which with Latch, I always pronounce her name incorrectly, um, featuring contributions to 20 different leading paleo artists. It's a, it's a large format book, Metazoic Art. Is basically sold out already. It's done incredibly well. Um, it's received some really glowing reviews. It's very Darren. attractive. Yes. You've got to give it the patented table thump. Oh, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, well. Okay, here we go. Right. It's a large book, right? So here's what it sounds like on a desk. <laughs> I, what did it sound like at your end? How was it for you? You sounded substantial. You gave it some oomph there. I did. I did actually put some force, some effort into that. Yeah, you're in here. Even you made it. Um, Even I made it. Even you made it. Yeah, so, uh, um, I mean, what else to say about it? I mean, I think that's... Well, I think... I wish I could find my copy. Oh, we're off to a good start, Darren. A great start. Well... Let me say that when you when you kind of like decide who are we going to, who is representing the, you know, who is at the forefront of any given thing, whatever that is, whatever we mean by that, you know, scientific discovery or an artistic movement or portrayal in the media, who is at the forefront is often quite like a sort of biased take. It's dependent on your own where am I going with this? What I'm saying is that the people that we selected to be included in this book, I feel are like a, a good, like basically um, it's a, 
a good number of people that represent what is actually happening in paleo art right now, where the sort of action is, you know, who's doing the good stuff. Um, so in no particular, well, in the order in which they are in the book, Gabriel Aguito, Joshua Knupper, Corbin Rainbow, uh, Emiliano Trocco, Midiano Diallo, uh, Joanna Kobierska, Jed Taylor, Daniel Default, Villasin Conan, Raven Amos, Mark Witten, John Conway, and and others. That's not the list of all of them. But um, I'll say the key thing of a book like this, the key thing of any book that is based around the showcasing of art, is what does the book look like? And I'm probably repeating myself, but um, the fact that it's big, it's glossy, the quality of reproduction is top notch i'd say that's the key thing uh, and uh a slightly controversial opinion perhaps but the text is secondary like the text could <laughs> could almost be anything it could be like, it could be as useless as poetry and it could and it could accompany the paintings and people would still appreciate the book because they're mostly looking at the pictures right Do you, think you that's fair? say as the as the writer I say as the, as the writer. I mean, obviously, you know, I did my bestest to write goodly. <laughs> sorry, sorry, wrote to wrote as goodly as I could, using all the languages or using all the language skills I have. Um, but yeah, and I, I, I kind of, I like it when I read about a. Uh, an artist's work and the writing tells you something about the backstory to the painting in this illustration the artist aims to convey their feelings of <laughs> melancholy as they looked upon the birds on the lawn and that is reflected in the composition of this painting where we can clearly see the artist has symbolized themselves as the piece of dry grass in the corner you know stuff like that i want that in a discussion <laughs> of artwork and um I, I i tried to put some of that into the text it's not just like this is a picture of a patasaurus and it's brown it's like yeah. in this picture the artist is... I'm, I'm i'm not being entirely serious i have not actually tried to find oh my god i just <laughs> I think I was. I just gave a. I gave a talk about this last year at the American Society for Aesthetics um, annual meeting about how paleo art mostly doesn't ever convey. Um, alleg yeah, isn't isn't allegorical or symbolic. I that was that was the whole point of my talk. So I'm yes, uh, yeah, being. I mean, it's a it's a it's a truth of a lot of non paleo art too that a lot of things are read in by. Um, critics and writers about that it. weren't weren't there as the intention yeah um so <laughs> it's not not unusual to treat paleo art in that way but it's especially um uh, silly in respect to paleo art i think yes um as... it's uh it's a great book i actually prefer it quite a bit to the original um dinosaur art the first one um i think it's better looking it's got more variety of styles in it which i really like there's some really cool well really different styles in there like the the difference between you know complete compute complete photorealism to very stylized um not photorealistic at all artwork it really shows the breadth of what's going on i wonder if that's a change primarily in um 
actual paleo art and whether it's um, just the choices this time. I think the former, yes, because I, I wanted to just touch on that as well. It's obvious that there's more diversity in style, you know, in terms of like what kind of work artists are doing. Um, you yourself, of course, are a good example of that. You're producing some stuff that's not conventional paleo art. And I would say this is this is a I'd say this is a new thing in paleo. I think it's people are being deliberately more experimental and exploratory in style. And whether that's, you know, you're saying is this a deliberate choice or is it like, um, you know, reflecting the way the field is going? I think it's reflecting the way the field is going, because imagine selecting artworks for the original Steve White's original dinosaur art of. Oh, dear. I don't know what, what year it's published. No 2012 ish. Okay, yeah. Imagine if yeah. you're selecting that that work. There weren't people doing semi-abstract, semi-symbolic, uh, sort of you know things that were relevant to paleo art. Not really. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think it's reflective of more diversity, uh, more diversity in style, more diversity in the people that are doing it. Um, so yeah, I think that's um. Yeah, I mean, there's a limit to how much you can say about a mostly art book on a podcast, but so yeah, I think. Yeah, so that's probably enough on that, right, then? So, yeah. Mies, Mieser, I keep on showing it on the screen. Look, <laughs> look, here it is. Uh, Miesergar, it's a big, glossy book. It costs, it's very reasonably priced. It's 30 English pounds here in Britain. Now, this actually links to something else we should touch on, which is that Bloomsbury is a UK publisher, and because of a plan to divide UK from the rest of the world, brexit it's now harder and harder to uh get british goods out of our lit our sacred little archipelago so i i don't know how you're supposed to get this elsewhere in the world it's, po it's possible but i think it's hard it's got a us dollar price of 40 dollars so but i hear people in other nations saying that it's hard to get or even impossible to get so um oh really hmm. yep that's, that's what i hear yeah um but yeah buy it if you can please and if you do buy it maybe we'll do another one in 10 more years mm -hmm. maybe sooner mm -hmm. sooner <laughs> so yeah so mesocart dinosaurs and other ancient animals in art because it's like not just dinosaurs there's other animals in there also edited by steve white and darren ash forward by Terra whitlatch 20 contributing um artists published by bloomsbury oh one final story now as you'll know and i never mention this ever mention this uh it's a very well kept secret but i've worked closely with sir david attenborough over recent years and and one of the things he and i talk about quite a lot is books he's because he's got a huge libraries very into books and he likes people give him a lot of books and um so i showed him a copy of this i didn't have one to give him i'm sorting that out right now but um he's looking through it and the first thing he did is he, he went to the forward by Terra Whitlatch. And he said, who's Terra Whitlatch? And I said, well, David, have you seen Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the story. For those of you who don't know, Terra Whitlatch is best known, I think. She's best known as, she's a phenomenal artist, but she's best known as a creature designer for things like the creatures of the Phantom Menace. So she was like the designer of Jar Jar Binks and... <laughs> No, all that kind of stuff. So I was going to say, well, David, you know that character called Jar Jar Binks in the Phantom Menace? 
Well, that, that's Tara Whitlatch. Yeah, but no, but that. <laughs> anyway, so that's one sort of Mesozoic art-themed book. Let's talk about another one. Cool. Yeah, someone else has a book out. It's me. I managed to get a book out every nine years. No, actually, on average, it's every five years, I guess. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not too bad, is it? Um, so, yeah, my book, did I? I don't I was probably working on it when we did the last podcast, but it wasn't out, was it? You were working on it secretly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the book is now out. And speaking of things, that if you can't get hold of um, Mesozoic art, you will be able to get hold of mine. I've checked this. It's pretty easy to get in most places. Um, it's called A History of Painting with Dinosaurs, possibly in brackets or possibly after a colon, <laughs> depending on the platform and my mood. Um, and basically, the um, the conceit of the whole book is what if all the painters of history that you're familiar with had painted dinosaurs? Um, you're not, not holding dinosaurs. a copy. You're not holding one up to the camera so the podcasters uh, podcast. You know why can... I'm not, Darren? Because you can't, you can't find one. I don't own one, so um... I have sold them all. I don't have any. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I. I sold them all at TetsuCon. They're all gone. Oh, actually, no, I've got a preprint here. Oh, excellent. It's so full if, of errors. So, so if you're a listener, I can, can hold it up it. and I can I can slap it on the counter. Hang on. Mm -hmm. Oh, ow. I just hit myself in the head with it. <laughs> huh. So it's so it's a seven page softback pamphlet then. <laughs> It is indeed not a particularly substantial book. I don't want to give people the wrong wrong well, impression. If they've got that... all yesterday's, it's exactly the same. Yeah, I was going to say so, that. Um, yeah, that's pretty easy to think. Um, and my um, idea with the book is this. It's a bit curious that great the great artists of history have such a narrow field of view if you see what i mean there's a there's a limited number of subjects they engage in um you can count them on one hand in many ways it and it does not follow at all the scientific developments that have happened in the world so you know if you think about the difference between what we knew about the world in 1800 and what we knew about the world in 1900 oh uh, we went from lots of intellectual people thinking the world was possibly not very old at all. No. Scientific thought I'm talking about here. To, well, the world's probably impossibly old. It was filled with all sorts of weird creatures that we're just now beginning to think existed. And the universe is huge, too. Um, have you seen um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Yes, I have, but I don't remember it. <laughs> You know the bit at the end where they're giving presentations? <laughs> it's and like that, is it? Is, and then there's one guy, and he's like, clearly, he's in school because he's a jock. He's like a sportsy yeah. guy. <laughs> and he's giving his speech about history. <laughs> and he says, things are bigger, <laughs> yet smaller. There's computers. <laughs> Go send Demas High! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that just came to mind. Continue. It's quite <laughs> similar. But yeah, what well, sort of like imagine 
like because I spend a lot of time thinking about what if you had someone from history and put them in the modern world? What would they think of it? What would they think was interesting, good, bad? You know, what would what would people from history think about the modern world? And actually, in some ways, you do have people from history in the modern world, don't you? Because there's old people. But also, you get the development of people that are in a tradition, and how do they react to things? And interestingly, art does, painting does react to certain things. It reacts to photography mm. fairly clearly, but it doesn't really engage with the new subjects that it's being presented with, not in what you'd call fine art. Now, partly that's selective, I guess. If you started to paint dinosaurs, everyone would say, <laughs> you crazy bastard. You know, you, you're you not ever going to be hang, hung in a serious gallery with the Go go work for the you know the tabloid news people and do some illustrations for them or something about you know prehistoric beasts. We don't care about that stuff, maybe. But also, there's just not very much interest in it from um, mainstream artists, which I think was kind of fascinating. And I wanted to see what it was like. What if this tremendous development of style that they were engaged in included like the best subject matter, which is dinosaurs? It's not all <laughs> dinosaurs, obviously. There's um. There's um there's other things in there, pterosaurs mainly. Um but that's partly the motivation as well. I do actually think that um it's great subject matter. And I think it's partly what Paleoart has to offer the modern world. Um when people are a little unclear on the direction of painting in particular, two-dimensional images. Um, you know, uh, in some ways the great narrative of style. Um, is played out and done and people are like well what 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 new can you do in painting is there any point in painting anymore um and well yeah because there's a whole heap of subject matter that's never been properly explored um mm. and so in some brutal way i just bashed them together are you happy that's with the book it? yeah are you happy i hate it i hate everything about it i never want to see it again no <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you serious uh i'm happy enough with the book yeah it's hard to see because i worked on it for you know oh, you know this you work on something you, you can't see it anymore a lot of the time oh yeah you need a so bit I... of perspective on it you know yeah um, I, 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 I probably I, well, need to I... put it away for a year and come back and have a look at it and see whether i think i did a good job but i can't tell yes yes as let me say briefly that as someone who's published many books people are like oh my god it must be such a thrill seeing the book like finally in final form and it's like well actually when the book appears it's like i feel like i've read it a thousand times i know it inside out and it's like, oh god now it now it seems so boringly familiar that um, mm. so i often actually find it useful with a new book to yeah like like not not look at it for a couple of years and then come back to it which i, I did recently with cryptozoological and i'm reading it it's like wow it's actually quite good so <laughs> but, <laughs> do, you, do you want to know what i think about this book i do indeed well john speaking of someone who firstly doesn't own it but has i just haven't got around to buying it uh, or stealing it from you but um i have um yeah looked at i looked at the the, the, the proofs now i've always thought that you have like your your art is kind of okay you got a modicum of talent but um yeah, years ago, there was a TV show called Fortean TV, presented by Father Lionel Fanthorpe, and he visited this psychic artist who claimed that he was able to contact the spirits of all the great artists of history and channel them and paint in their style. And 
it turned out that this wasn't true. <laughs> and <laughs> but when he was doing like, now I'm now I'm Van Gogh. And <laughs> this is how I'm doing a Van Gogh, a quick Van Gogh. There was a bit when the uh, the cameraman accidentally collided with him while he was doing Van Gogh and he tore into a rage as Van Gogh was famous for and um, <laughs> sort of punched the cameraman. It's like, because he's clearly, you know, possessed by the spirit of Van Gogh. It wasn't his fault, but it didn't look like a Van Gogh painting. It was terrible. It looked like someone, get this, get this. It looked like someone trying to do a really bad knockoff of Van Gogh when they actually weren't very good at it. With that in mind, <laughs> when, I, when I look at your paintings, your, the, the, the art in this book, uh, okay, si uh, being sincere here, I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's like really, really impressive. I really think you've totally nailed it, really. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm super happy with the, the look of this book. I adore it. I think it's amazing. So, um, uh, well, that's it. It's something that, like, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously being facetious. I'm allowed to talk about you in that way. I think. I hope. But, um, you know, it's obviously you've, you've built up like a sort of reputation as someone who's able to do this like pretty good paleo art stuff. But the fact that you can do this as well, it's like. Are you missing I, a trick here? Are you just wasting your time pissing around with dinosaurs and pterosaurs when you should actually be doing like, this is what Van Gogh would be doing if he were alive today. Turns I out mean, John Conway can do it. I do have some advantages. You know, there's a, there's a certain amount of photoshoppery going on and stuff like that. Le shock. Um, yeah, um, obviously. Um, but it is how I learned to paint. And I think that a lot of people don't really re do this actually they don't you know i i came up through the more art art side especially in how i learned to do things a lot of people come through the scientific illustration side or comics a lot of the time or something like that which have different traditions but i came up through with fine art western painting being what i looked at and what i how i learned which is just basically copying so i copied an awful lot of styles is how i learned to paint um, so for me, this is not an unusual thing to be doing. Um, I do get, I do find it a little frustrating sometimes when I produce something that's closer to photo real and people say, oh, wow, you know, you've made a real leap here or something like that. And I'm like, hmm, all right. So you do realize I paint the way I paint deliberately it's not <laughs> that uh i didn't i don't know how to paint realistically or mm. um that you can see the brush strokes that's also deliberate um <laughs> so it's you're a, actually it's you're not actually using a paintbrush on actual canvas no that's I'm the secret actually. yeah but um yeah so i <laughs> it's always been there i guess i've always copied styles it's always been in my artwork and it hasn't really been made or imbibe styles but it's never really been made so explicit that i can copy styles directly and reasonably well not good enough to be a forger unfortunately i would love to be a forger but <laughs> good enough for a for a for a um for a uh really hefty home like this <laughs> Slap. um yeah so we should move well, on because actually we um uh we need to get to the topic and uh yeah you can buy this pretty much anywhere i think on amazon it's on lots of the amazon stores so go to your local amazon and check it out uh, it's only 20 pounds which is i think it's like 22 dollars 
so it's it's pretty cheap um i get actually a pretty good cut um it's uh, self-published but uh amazon's deal is actually pretty good so terrible big evil corporation but they give you a good deal and they print the book locally so you're not going to be shipping across oceans to get your book mm. so a history of painting with dinosaurs with dinosaurs yeah and pterosaurs but we can't we can't put that on the cover everyone knows you need dinosaurs on the cover and um yeah yeah there's a whole bunch of like really cool sciencey newsy things that i think are worthy of comment but we're not going <laughs> to mention any of them i wanted to i wonder about the death of p22 Darren, always with the great content you're never <laughs> the great content ivor woodpeckers the successful reintroduction of lamagayas into spain but we're going to talk about dodo resurrection because it's in the news right now early february 2023 because this company called colossal biosciences has um released put out a press release saying hey everyone guess what you know how we successfully cloned mammoths back to life and thylacines well now we're gonna do the same with the dodo yay and then we're gonna have the dodos and we're gonna put them back in mauritius and it's just going to be back like it was in the olden times before people destroyed Mauritius and the dodo. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so they have, have the team have said that they want to raise, I think it's $150 million uh, to, <laughs> this, is a, this is the funny small print, to pursue research on the dodo. <laughs> Not like to do the project. It's like, so step one, let's find out what we actually need to do. We need $150 million for that. Wait a um, second, what is this thing? <laughs> what's, what's, and then once they've done that research and actually start the work, how, perchance, are you going to resurrect an animal that died out several hundred years ago? Um, dodos are a modern animal. Don't be misled by that Ice Age movie. They're not Pleistocene animals, because I know most people rely on that. Um, <laughs> they're a modern animal. They're known for many skeletons. There's hardly any soft tissue remains, as, as I'm sure is well known to listeners of this podcast, but not to the public at large. When you see a dodo in a museum, that's a model, right? Someone made that out of like polystyrene or wood and stuck like goose feathers on it. It's not a stuffed dodo. It's a model. There's no surviving like actual taxidermy mounts of dodo the closest that exists to it is the uh the one in oxford it's famously called the ashmolean dodo but it because it was kept at the ashmolean museum which is a separate museum from the oxford university museum of natural history let me say that more slowly the oxford university museum of natural history where they have the partial face of the ashmolean dodo and they also have uh, I think is its left foot. So they have skin from the foot and skin from the face. There's some feather follicles on the skin from the face. And DNA has been successfully extracted from those remains. I think it has from some dodo bones as well. There's many dodo skeletons that are well-preserved. And they've been used in phylogenetic studies. So we've got a pretty good idea of where the dodo is in the pigeon family tree. It's it's a gurin. Um, that is its most closely, well, or they should be called raphines. That's the older name, but whatever. It's the group that includes the famous, um, uh, the crowned pigeons of Australasia and the... Uh, uh, 
uh, a bunch of other bunch of other weird big pigeons. <laughs> um, definitely a pigeon. So they say they're going to get dodo genetics, and then they're going to get chicken. Uh, no, not chicken. Pigeon. They're going to get pigeon eggs, and then using the the, the magic. Oh no, no, no magic. The science of gene editing. They're going to turn pigeon embryos, presumably meaning. When they say pigeon embryos, that's like, there's like, I don't know, 300 species of pigeons. So but think of what I just said about, you know, what kind of pigeon dodos are. Are they going to use crowned pigeon embryos? Because that's not impossible. There's lots of crowned pigeons in captivity. I think, I think, I don't think it's that difficult to breed them. Are they going to use those? Or are they just talking about a street pigeon? <laughs> We're just going to get some like feral rock dove eggs and tinker with the embryos in gene editing and then a dodo D done right is that yeah I... well that sounds like a plausible plan and i'm sure we'll see it just like we saw with the mammoth and the um thylacine <laughs> earlier um i, I guess uh, just on a practical point aren't dodos really quite big compared to modern pigeons or are there some giant pigeons that you could possibly use for this so rough thoughts on this dodos aren't as big as people used to think they are they're somewhere their current mass estimate is like 12 to 19 kilos so that's kind of like a, a mid-sized turkey so they are big whereas the biggest living pigeons so that would be the victoria crown pigeon that's probably like about two kilos so hmm. they're they're a fair bit bigger now it's a it's a, it's a bird it's about it's about turkey sized yeah. so um yeah they're, they're 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 big but um i'm not i don't think that's particularly uh, you know sort of like uh, that would be dismissive but that's not particularly relevant or interesting uh, the thing that's like the problem is how do you actually how do you modify the embryo of any given species and somehow turn it or over generations turn those into the members of into animals that look like they're because if oh, if you're editing I'm a little bit you... surprised they're trying doing a lot, they're saying they're going to do it on embryos rather than yeah you know the germline well, so that make any that's... sense to me well, that's a weird thing about this this project. They've actually said that they deliberately want to work with eggs because they imply they've implied in the press release that that removes ethical concerns that you might have. Like what? Because <laughs> experimenting on babies is, is way less ethically problematic than working on um, individuals that are I don't know outside of an egg. Um, it's just very. <clears throat> the point is the main take home on this is that it's very arm wavy. And it's like, we'll work on eggs and we'll do gene editing. So well, how exactly does that work? And like a similar thing to, you know, the discussions about the mammoth or the woolly mammoth, the claimed woolly mammoth and resurrection or reconstitution or whatever you want to call it, is they're always talking about um, editing the genes of like, uh, like living elephants. Well, so, so hold on. If you're inserting like woolly mammoth genes into like living Asian elephants, Aren't you going to have for a long time, over many generations, and we, we we all have some rough idea of like generational turnover in elephants? It ain't that quick. Is like you're talking about generations 
of elephants that are slightly got a tiny little bit of mammoth in them. It's like if you started injecting chimpanzee genes into yourself and then had children, <laughs> it's like, would you give birth to, would you be giving birth, John? Would you be giving birth to baby chimpanzees? It's like, no, they'd have like some chimp genes and we don't know whether they would be the genes that, well, on the other hand, maybe you would deliberately select the genes that do code for coat length, so hair length and skin colour and facial well, pronatism and wouldn't they or i think they actually have to do it this way don't they i, I it isn't the um the it's not a complete genome from these animals is it, it i thought it, it was damaged i i'm okay so i'm no expert on this and i haven't actually gone to check on this i know that we have bits of bits of the dodo genome as we do for many extinct animals but that's the key thing isn't it it's bits it's like we've got like little segments of dna and sometimes they've those bits have been informative enough to help us place them in phylogeny but in terms of like we don't have so them saying they need to raise 150 you know, million dollars for the sort of initial exploratory phase on this maybe their thinking is that we need to have as many of the the as much of the genetic code of the, of the animal as we do so that we can say those genes code for eye color those genes code for body size those genes code for feather length you know maybe they're saying that's what they need to do because at the moment we certainly don't have that we have that for hardly any animals turns out turns out we've just got a whole bunch of the only dna preserved is the junk dna i mean it could be this case that's it's just like you'd insert it all and there'd be no different because the dna was not well either wasn't visible or didn't even code for anything <laughs> yeah yeah um, so we know we, we now know, we've got loads of genes that tell us about intestinal physiology of the dodo well that's great so now you can get its gut flora like get its digestive system working but we've got no genes that code for its life appearance or yeah its body we've got a we've got a pigeon that gets sick a lot we're not really sure why <laughs> it can poop it can poop like a dodo but it's, but it's but it's this big size of a hamburger and um <laughs> and it can fly so in terms of like the actual mechanics of it exactly how the work is done i uh, i know you um like you were very dismissive of my size thing but the reason i'm getting at that sort of thing is because i don't understand the genetic stuff well enough to say whether this is going to be possible at some point right that you'll just be able to splice the dna in i think doing it in embryos is weird rather than uh anyway the germline but okay um it might be possible at some stage i don't know um i'm kind of interested in the the epigenetic stuff that goes into animals and how difficult this will be and so one of the things well it's partly genetics but it's also will the embryos be viable in a little egg well presumably so pe people have um raised raised is the wrong term they have it's possible to have chicks go through the entire developmental process in kind of an artificial environment so basically basically in layperson's terms in a petri dish right you don't have to be a plastic egg like, yeah, like no, a plastic egg. or something <laughs> just in a cup just like <laughs> an egg in a cup it's that is possible and you can you can mimic the uh you know the the calcium needs and the gaseous exchange you can, you can you can mimic all of that in the artificial environment so that would actually not be that difficult you wouldn't have to worry about uh, I don't think we've, I'm pretty sure we don't have any dodo eggs. I'm pretty sure we don't have any idea of what the size of dodo egg was, but I'm saying that's not really 
that's not really a problem. Mm-hmm. But you mentioning the epigenetics. So there's to me, there's three facets of this project. There's number one, their whole this whole their whole pitch, which is like like I said, you know, how I introduced this, like, oh, we've done the mouth, we've done the thigh scene, because it's basically, it's the same people, incidentally, it's the same team that have done, that are involved in uh, mammoth and thylacine research. The secondly, there's their thing that we're just used gene editing embryos. And the third thing is this mention of environment and rewilding. So they're basically saying that we'll, we'll get the dodo, uh, who knows how many individuals i mean <laughs> sort of like the, the raise a, a whole herd of dodo and herd may indeed be the correct term for those of you worrying about the etymology there yes a, a group of terrestrial herbivorous birds on the ground is called a herd um goose geese it's a goose when it's geese in the sky it's a skein not a flock and when it's wandering around on the ground it's a herd of geese get Bats. it right people yeah yeah um they've done they got a dodo herd then they just release them into the uh, Mauritian wilderness. And then, whereas, of course, in actual fact, uh, so the dodo, we don't know exactly when it became extinct, but it's thought that it became extinct sometime around about 1690. And part of the reason it became extinct was uh, people did kill them, but people introduced a long list of animals, including monkeys, pigs, dogs, rats, which all predated on this slow-growing highly vulnerable to predation island endemic island specialist animal those animals are still there on mauritius and the environment on mauritius as you'd guess is not what it was it's like been substantially degraded it's like today i don't know i'm no expert on mauritius i've never been there but i don't think today that there's like sort of a suitable environment for this kind of animal you would have to put as is often the case in these like anything to do with conservation uh, reintroducing uh, an animal to an area let alone an extinct animal to an area you'd need to do a ton of work on rebuilding not just the environment not just making it look pretty but in terms of ecosystem function like it literally in terms of like what plants there are in the you know the the, the different you know what's in the understory as opposed to just the big trees that's really hard and then dodos are quite complicated because another thing we don't really know what the dodo ate there's actually a bit of controversy as to what its specific food source was there's been claims that it was that it had some some kind of like obligate mutualism with various kinds of endemic plants we're no longer sure whether that's true or not probably isn't true but it almost certainly would have some complex relationship with various plants. And then there's also this argument that Dodo wasn't a herbivore, as everyone always thought, but it was probably omnivorous and it ate a whole bunch of invertebrates. So your question then should be, well, are the, do those invertebrates persist in suitable numbers and suitable sort of findable density or whatever, you know, in the environment, in a substantially degraded place that's now overrun by pigs and dogs and rats, etc.? The answer is, the answer is you've got like several hundred years worth of catching up in terms of repairing the ecosystem before you can just chuck. And I've got a question an whether this is even the plan, because how does that make you money? Um, it just doesn't. Rewilding them doesn't do anything for you. Um so two things to... occur. It's just an, a never-ending um cycle of give us money so we can research it and they're never really expecting to do it right it's just the way of making money for whatever they're doing researching um or there's some sort of 
um, Jurassic Park sort of idea in their heads there, which is a multi, multi billion dollar idea, right? If you could nail this down and start bringing back extinct animals, you could open something that people would pay to go to. And I think lots of people would pay to go to it. I think it would be very popular, even though it's not dinosaurs. I think if you could get some of the more recent, ex recently extinct, spectacular things, hmm. I think, and you've got to wonder whether this is the, this is the business idea. I, I I don't buy the rewilding thing very much, to be honest. I just don't think it it doesn't make sense to do it right, uh, either from a business perspective or even an ecological perspective. Bringing back the dodo is so, hardly a high priority um, conservation target is it it's not like it fulfilled this urgent need in um mauritius's ecosystem and we've got to <laughs> get mm. it back in there everything falls apart um yeah a bit late for that. So, um, yeah yeah i think re rewilding is used as a buzzword by increasingly by people who just talk about there, there was there was a thing two years ago where the Aspinall Foundation were talking about flying some captive elephants back to probably Kenya and just reintroducing them. And they were calling that a rewilding effort. And it's, that's not rewilding. That's just chucking animals into the environment and hoping for the best. Rewilding is like a massive long term. Uh, I hate to use this term, but grassroots effort literally grassroots effort where you have to put you know years and years of work into boring stuff like soil function and invertebrate density as i've as i've already implied and it's like if you're really interested in repairing a highly damaged and mostly entirely destroyed uh, ecosystem like that of a various uh, indian ocean islands then um yeah you've got decades and decades of hard work like on the ground work to do there way before you talk about megafauna okay technically dodo is not megafauna but way before you talk about large-ish animals it's, so it does just yeah it's it's just a kind of publicity thing and then so then you come back to the well is it good to have this like discussion about um is it good that people are thinking about it and talking about reintroducing extinct animals uh i don't know i might if i say my first instinct is like the the backlash i always see in these things instantly and not just from like sort of super nerdy you know sciencey types but from everyone it's like doesn't that seem like a real waste of time when there's all these other pressing issues that's that's the first thing you always see on these things it's like wait a minute we're losing we're losing species that we can still save and you're talking about spending probably billions of dollars on something that's like you know, there's no conservationist running around today saying we need to bring back the dodo. They're kind of like more concerned with other things. And there is a backlash to that sort of, which is like, well, yeah, but if there was a dodo or there, if there was a woolly mammoth, then people would be more invested in preserving the habitat and automatically then it serves as an umbrella species. It, you do all this work on other things. But well, yeah, there's the... also another argument is, is this really is this taking money away from conservation or is it taking money away from something else? Because it's not like we don't spend trillions and trillions and trillions on all sorts of things which have nothing to do with conservation. Right. Yep. So just because it seems like it's conservation e doesn't mean that it's taking money from conservation. And I think people criticize things like this, imagining that, oh, we'll just we would get that money if 
you know that money would go into conservation if these people weren't doing it and that's not necessarily true in fact that's, i don't think it is true there's no way that's true there's no, no way that's true. so well that's not really an argument to have like it's just no. coming from the general pot of money and yet like okay we'll argue about all sorts of things that we waste a whole heap of money on it's not really interesting to me that argument um yep. and i guess another argument in favor of it would be yes but we are going and i don't think anyone did doubts this we are going to lose a lot of species we've lost a hell heap already right wouldn't it be nice to have a relatively cheap technology to bring them back for future rewilding efforts um let's say we get it get the cost down per species to be you know reasonable and you're looking at an area and thinking we can do a rewilding effort we're missing like five of these species crucial ones but we can bring them back for you know i don't know a billion dollars <laughs> or whatever well, that's and that, so that's... i think that yeah maybe there is a positive spin on this and that learning how to do this you know could be pretty useful uh in the future if we want to get biodiversity back up and not wait for evolution to re-evolve not re-evolve <laughs> re-evolve no re-evolve diversity let's say right which will take millions of years so yeah i guess that's my two um defenses possibly but i'm very i'm i am quite skeptical of the actual projects of course yeah, but i yeah. i think that the idea to me feels a bit it's kind of interesting and i definitely want to see something like this right if it could be done successfully it'd be very cool yeah yeah um i mean another argument that's used against it is that by talking about this all the time I would, I, okay, I was going to say I would think, but I wonder if there's a chunk of the public that already, that thinks, based on how many times this has been discussed, by now, by now, if someone says, if you were to put out a press release today saying, we're going to resurrect the woolly mammoth, at least some part of the public would like yawn again. <laughs> so hasn't that been done 10 times already? I wonder what the sort of general public take on this is given how prevalent discussion of like cloning um just the term cloning not actually going into what it actually means the term cloning and the terms like you know terms like dna um you know de-extinction or whatever they're, they're now so familiar it might be assumed that those are already things that have happened or been done a lot or even it's easier or commonplace it's like, can't you just clone it back to life dude it's like it doesn't matter that it's extinct do you know what I mean? It's like been so over-discussed. I, I am sure kind of like... there are people out there that think this, but I should, I'd i be very surprised if it was a lot. Because if it was true, you could go see a woolly mammoth. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? And it doesn't exist. You know, that's not something that's happened yet. I think okay. people might... The gen, I think a general idea is that it might not be very, very difficult, right? Which it yeah. probably is. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there's a whole heap of people out there that think it's already been done. But I'm just guessing. I don't know. Darren. I just I just wonder if the amount we discuss it implies that it's easy. That yeah. therefore in turn implies that it's the extinction is less of a big deal. Than, yeah, to backups. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like we've got a backup strategy. That we've got a, exactly, which we which yep. we absolutely don't. So like extinction, the extinction is not a thing. But then again, this is the problem. I always pitch an argument and then think of the opposite argument. The opposite argument is, of course, that like 
I am not anti-intellectual enough to say that stop all of this research. Don't do that anymore. Whereas you can't, it's like clearly the most grandiose, ridiculous thing you can think of in gene, I don't want to say gene editing again, because it sounds like a buzzword now, but tinkering with genes and modifying things, we know that year on year, like, you know, innovations are happening and remarkable things are being done. There's all kinds of stuff that's like new that wasn't the case 10 or 20 years ago, whatever. So it's like, there's loads of things that seem fanciful now that research keeps on going on and more techniques are, you know, used, blah, blah, blah. Uh, People are going to do remarkable things. So we shouldn't, I don't want to sort of make it sound like, well, just stop talking about all this like gene editing, de-extinction stuff. I still think it it should be looked into. But yeah, does it take, does it take the sort of like, I don't know. I mean, so so where I was going to go with that. Yeah, I get, I get the argument. I'm not too worried about that because I think most of the people that are doing the real efforts to keep things from going extinct don't really think we're very close to having um, the extinction available. And I think most people will recognize people who might give money or something, you know, someone that might make a difference would recognize that even if we can do, it'll probably be really expensive and done in really rare cases. Um, It's not much of a backup strategy. I think would be it's much look. I think most people following this stuff who care about it at all. So, well, it's much easier to just, try to make sure that thing doesn't go extinct in the first place that's where we should put the bulk of our effort um yeah so the other thing the other thing i was going to say where i can see like a potential pro and a con is that but the the con is that people are like imagine that imagine that you're among the small number of scientists who works on actual conservation not just on mauritius but you know on indian ocean islands or what have you then this must be oh god those those lying genetics bastards are taking away the spotlight from our actual research where we're doing you know actual conservation work in Russia's. that could be the con but the pro to that is like well wait a minute it's like would we be talking about would we be mentioning mauritius or conservation in mauritius and likewise you know globally like right now who how many people are talking about conservation on mauritius rewilding on mauritius it's like I know for some people that's that's all they talk about, but but for the majority, there's so now there's loads more people talking about that. Loads there's loads of people that have never even heard the word Mauritius before or know where Mauritius is, for example. So, um, so that's the potential pro to this. It's like uh, I don't I don't know I don't know what point I'm making, but it's like no publicity is better publicity, kind of. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I agree with that. I actually think that viewing these things as competing scientific projects or conservation projects is probably just wrongheaded. I don't think that's where the money's coming from. I don't think it's competing for the same attention from the same people. Yeah. I just think it's an extra thing going on in the culture that can be harnessed for good. Yes. This this is a this hopefully, is an interesting this is a component of the argument about mammoth resurrection because the standard response from people who know, you know, like biologists, natural historians, people say, well, how is it morally right to spend tens of millions, hundreds of millions on mammoth resurrection when we can't even save living elephants, right? That's the standard first response. But the counter response to that, and I'm not necessarily making this argument myself, but I've certainly heard it, is, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If there's money going into the resurrection of the mammoth, 
do you think that one penny of that money is going to elephant conservation no no it's like this is entirely like new money quotes around that because how money is actually generated is a subject not for this podcast but it's like it's not like it's not there's an allotted pile of money it's like new money is somehow generated and that that money has no connection whatsoever to elephant conservation it seems about as relevant as saying well you know if facebook can spend 10 billion dollars on advertising why can't they spend it on elephant conservation well yeah they could but that's just not how the world works it'd be nice if they did Hmm. just because it's got some it feels more adjacent i yeah i'm agreeing with you exactly i mean i just think yeah yeah. yeah, it's a different sort of money and and the amount of money that is spent in the world on things makes these amounts of money really pretty trivial right yeah Yeah, a few billion on trying to re-resurrect something so what you know that sort of money is just completely wasted at big companies all the time all the time I think the fact the fact that it comes from private like corporations and companies is 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 interesting because that that means it doesn't have an overlap with like big conservation. Yeah, if you had big Those... charity, big sort of wildlife charities or something funding this, yeah. I think that's a real argument to have, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, we that's... should definitely look into like really is that is that the way you want to head? That seems like a waste of money. I'd be totally on board with that. That's where oh, I'm but going. But given with that, that the money, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, if there's like a like a you know the United States Science Fund and it's only got, I mean, none of those things have got much money. But if they've only got a hundred million dollars and the Mammoth Project or the Dodo Project wants ninety million and they got it, that would be a major cause for us all to be quite angry. But um, yeah, it's not. It's private corporations. So we should probably stop there on that because we're both, I think, on the same page in terms of being fairly. Uh, <sighs> Fairly negative. Yep. And what um, the people like is uh, disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dodo life appearance. Have you ever read my article on Dodo life appearance? I probably did, but probably, I don't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. So we know we know an awful lot about what Dodos actually look like in life based on a couple of really interesting pieces of art. The Mansur painting um, mm. from India in particular, which is a beautiful painting. I do remember and, this now, yeah. Yeah as well as bits and pieces of uh, of anatomy, including the Ashmolean head that I mentioned uh, earlier and what we understand about how the dodos relate to other pigeons. So the conventional image of it as this sort of fluffy looking fat bird with a stupid little tuft of feathers at the tip of the tail and with his belly dragging on the ground is obviously, surprise, surprise, is not at all accurate as to what it actually looked like. Um, but yeah, there's so, so go and read my Tetrabod Zoology article, The Life Appearance of the Dodo. Uh, there's a, a, a I, I fairly cite all the literature on this. There's quite a few really good articles and books that have been written on Dodos and their life appearance. Um, I'd like to discuss that at some other time because there's, uh, there's loads of cool stuff there. Um, well, that's the end of that chapter. Yep. I'm going to wrap it up. We're basically going to try and keep podcasts of approximately shortish length and try and get back into the swing of doing it fairly regularly. Maybe every now and again we'll have a special guest. Maybe not. I don't know. I can't even really bother with guests, to be honest. Scheduling <laughs> um, is really hard with guests. It'd be no. I think it'd be good, but I uh, yeah. I think just making sure that works is really hard. So, are you on the internet, John? I am. I am. Uh, my website is johnconway.art, and I am on Mastodon, which is um, john at sauropods.win. How about you, Darren? 
Oh, well, yeah, thank you very much, John. I blog at techbodgerawlytetzoo.com, which is where this podcast is hosted. I still tweet at Twitter as you don't tweet anywhere else. I'm yes, a terrible human being. Uh, I'm at. I can't see the book. There is no try. At Tezu. Thanks, John. Screwing that up. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Tune in next time. For the next thrilling installment, I was going to read a section from a book, but I couldn't find one that I thought was like worthy of a. Yep. Right. So... right yeah. That's the end of that chapter, then. Uh, and, yeah. End of chapter and book. Yep. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>